0: Not yet. Now. Now we are. October the 20th, 2019, lecture discussion number 80 now on the book of Joel. And last Sunday, October 13th, lecture number 79. Yes, I can count. The emphasis was on the invisibility of life and the relationship of the invisibility of life and the invisibility of God. It makes sense that life would be very difficult to detect. Because we think God is very difficult to detect, even though that's not true. Uh oh, there's two escapees. Where are your parents, young lady? Find your grandmother. There she's grandmother. Uh oh, that's a scary lady. Run. She did not take my advice, let the record show. Anyway. The There is this, God describes himself as invisible, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He says he's in secret, Matthew 6, 6, John 4, 24. And so there's this unseen aspect to God which he protects. And there's also an unseen dimension to life. And that making the question as a matter of, Repetition here. What is life has never been answered and is unanswerable scientifically. You cannot answer that question. So I have tried to place together in the last week or so this invisibility and this unseenness aspect of life. Dimension, if you will. And obviously Colossians 1, 15 through 17 provides the foremost reason for the invisibility of God. Why he is how he is. Jesus Christ the second person of the triune God, head, would become the invisible made visible, Colossians 1.15. God, who says he is a spirit, John 4.24, would add humanity, a physical body. And Christ, of course, is the God-man. He is Jesus, God of Acts 2.32. Uh, now, your Acts 2.32 might have a comma but there is no comma here. It's one word. have been saying that for 30 years. Why did that come up? Jesus God. No comma. It's one word. Delete the comma if your translation has it. Some have a hyphen. Get rid of the hyphen. It it masks the true meaning of that verse. And as you know, Jesus Christ declared himself to be life itself. John eleven twenty five, 25. John eight twelve. He's the light of life that brought life to the world. Genesis 1, 3. He's the bread of life. John 6, 35 through 51. He calls himself life. So life then, which was unseen and is relatively unseen by humanity, became seen in the person of Christ. The unseen showed himself. Life is a person. And mankind and animals, Mark 1.13, saw the life. Matthew 4, Luke 4. But aside from the mystery of godliness, which is, of course, the greatest of all of the mysteries of God, that's 1 Timothy 3.16, And we know what life is, but there remains uh, um, a mystery to the secularists, the academics. And there there is no answer. They have no answer to the great question, what is life? They've never answered it. Biological sciences have never, have not, cannot answer what is life. And they will never answer it. And they won't answer it because they, until they recognize that they are being, uh, that they are asking essentially the wrong question. Being asked the, the question, but they don't recognize that they are asking it wrongly. Because the question really isn't what is life, is it? The question is who is life? And whoever is life has said that he is unseen, that he is invisible, until he became visible. Life is invisible because life is not physical. Life is the breath of the spirit of life. Genesis seven twenty two. He tells us all of this information. It's all there as plain as it can be. The breath of life, the breath that, that is life, was breathed, given to the body of man. So he makes the body, and seven in Genesis two seven, he makes the body, he makes the body of animals, then he breathes into it life, and man became a living being, a living soul. The body of man had no activity until the breath was put into it. The life was put into it. The body has to have a life added. Now we get into Traducianism, how the life adds to infants. And that's another lecture. But you can look it up if you're so desired. Now, obviously, whenever we get into this subject about the life We have to go to Leviticus 17, Leviticus 7, 26, and Leviticus 17, 14. Because what do those say? Leviticus 7, 26 says the life is in the blood. And there's this prohibition from eating blood. And I'm saying to you that the life is in the breath. And I think that's obvious from 2.7. There was no life in Adam's blood until he got the breath. So, this life is in the blood in Leviticus. We're going to have to figure that out, reconcile it, as I said. There's a prohibition. You can't eat blood. If you eat blood, you're cast out of the nation of Israel. So, it's a serious symbolism here. And you have the entirety of the blood sacrificial system, the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Testimony, which is a picture of Christ. Apparently, there is a biblical correlation, therefore, between the blood of life and the breath of life. Because both of them are identified. So I have two. I have blood of life. Oops. And I have breath of life. The blood which is seen and the breath which is unseen, what's the commonality between the two? Or if you want to prefer, the, uh, the station of the two or the primacy. I'm asking, which one has primacy? Are they equal? Is there equality here? And at first glance, the uh, answer may appear to be uh, certain. Because the the breath clearly has authority over the blood. Without the breath, the blood, as I said with with Adam, has no motion. It has not sprung into life. So then, what is the blood to the breath? If this is one, and this is two, then why does he say the blood of life? What is he talking about? Has God made a mistake? Did he forget Genesis 2-7 when he wrote... Uh, Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 7. I, I suggest that you think no. I offer that free, no charge. Anyway, I should answer this soon, and, and today I should answer it. Actually, in fact, hopefully, I'll remember to do that. But I have a lot of stuff here today. But uh, and I can't, of course, as always, soon is a relative term. But I, I, you know, I've given you enough just to blow away my notes here. I suspect. Not everybody, actually, that's listening, even on the Internet, especially on the Internet. You've already figured out the rightful conclusion of that. I hope you have. But if that's not the case, uh, oh, my goodness, I might as well just blast away here. Here's a small hint. The cardiac cycle solves this. In other words, what's going on in your heart and what's going on in your body tells you how blood of life relates to breath of life, even though I am saying definitively that the breath of life has authority over the blood of life. In other words, this is this. This testifies of that. Does that make sense? So the cardiac cycle gives you a lot of information because I have coronary circulation. That is the circulatory system that is for the heart muscle itself. It doesn't leave the heart. And then, of course, I have the pulmonary circulation, and that is the circulation that goes into the lungs. And I have an exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And then the systemic circulation, that is that which goes to the body and the brain, the aortic aortic arch, if you will. All of that's closely related to the blood of life. So the blood of life, breath of life question, I think, is actually... um, as I said, it's laid out in the heart because the heart does what? What does it do? It pumps what? Blood. Leviticus is about blood. So the heart and Leviticus would have a tremendous relationship, would it not? They're both filled with blood, if you will. The heart actually, to, to be, and I'll get to this at the very end of the lecture, the heart does something that's amazing. It prevents the mixing of of oxygenated blood and deoxygenated blood. That's why there's a left and a right ventricle and a left and a right atrium is to stop the mixing of these of the oxygenated blood, oxygenated blood and the deoxygenated blood. I can barely say that. And by that I mean what is oxygenated blood with respect to the breath of life then and the blood of life. If my heart has blood and oxygen in it, then it has blood and oxygen in it. Does that make sense? or if I wish it has blood and breath, so obviously it 's going to solve this leviticus seventeen eleven through fourteen and seven twenty six issue. So all I have to do is look at the heart. How convenient that might be something we 're doing lately. So again, what is oxygenated blood? With respect to the breath of life and the blood of life. And and while you explore that, add in deoxygenated blood and then ask, why does the heart prohibit the blending of the two? Because it does. It will not allow, if it's functioning correctly, it will not allow oxygenated blood to mix with deoxygenated blood. So now I know of something very incredible. By just looking at the heart, what have I started to tell you about breath of life and blood of life? I've gone to something that is what? The heart. What is it? I'm trying to begin to to make the case that it's a symbol, aren't I? So that answers this question for you, doesn't it? Which one has primacy and which one has symbolism? But the heart stops this blending, this mixing. So what do I do now? Where else in the scripture is mixing? Where else in scripture is mixing impermissible by order of God himself or confronted by God himself? For example, uh, really quickly, we have Genesis 6. He floods the entire world because I have this mixing, doesn't he? Cosmological mixing. Genesis 19, Genesis thirteen, thirteen. Sodom. Something is going on there that is mixing. My favorite, of course, is Leviticus 19.19. Also, Daniel 2.40. I have Nebuchadnezzar's image where the toes of the image of Nebuchadnezzar are mixed with clay and iron. Again, I think that's a Genesis 6 reference. Leviticus 19.19 hardly ever presented accurately, and that's not surprisingly. So I've got a note here to go ahead and let's do Leviticus 19.19. Because I have to follow whoever wrote this note. Gets really mad at me later when we're talking alone in the room by ourselves. Here's what 1919 says. It's hardly ever done correctly. In fact, I guarantee you that you will never find anyone who attaches it to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. You are Genesis 6. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. When you hear the atheists attack the Bible, they like Genesis nineteen nineteen because they think it's stupid. Which is only identifying their, what's that word I want? Yeah, it rhymes with stupidity. Obviously, this has something to do with blood, as well as uh, all the mixing. How does a livestock breed with another kind? Did you ever ask that question? How is it possible for a livestock, a cattle, to breed with, say, a horse or a rhinoceros or a reptile? So that tells you what he's talking about when he says you won't mix seed. And what seed do you think he's talking about? Where else is seed in the Bible? And linen and wool are obviously mixed. Linen and wool uh, have a. That's where does linen come from? Where does wool come from? So that you begin to understand that there's. He's speaking about evil here. In Leviticus 19:19. 19, 19. Anyway, before we go on into all of that, let's uh, let's have a let's divert back to the main subjects here, and this will be very short. And by very short, I mean long. Hopefully, by now, with my unceasing bludgeoning or prompting, as I like to say, that's a euphemism, everyone has assimilated the theme of the two witnesses in Scripture. We know that there are two witnesses. We know about two as much as we can. And I have been beating on this for quite some time lately. Maybe you didn't know it. Two is the number of witness, testimony, or division, or separation. And the heart has how many sides? It has a right and a left. It has two sides. And it separates oxygenated blood from deoxygenated deoxygenated blood. So I have two bloods, if you will. Sheep are divided from goats, right and left. And there are two trees in the garden. And here comes now Schrodinger's cat, because that's the same as the Lamb's Book of Life. Okay, somewhat the same. And I'm going to explain that uh, last one a little bit, because it's everyone's favorite. By everyone, of course, I mean me. If you remember Erwin Schrodinger, that portion we did on his cat, he proposed... Oh, do I have to say hello to grandchildren? There's a storm coming? Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, got it. (sighs) Schrodinger, you might remember, proposed a cat in a box. It's a thought experiment. And he said that inside that box there's a medical, I'm sorry, mechanical device. And there's poison contained in a glass enclosure. So he, and I actually have a cat in a box somewhere, don't I, dear? I should have brought it today. Didn't think of it. Do we have any idea where it is? No. Whose fault is that? One of us is a hoarder in our house, apparently. Wonder which one. He has a box. Okay. And he has a cat. There he is. And, okay, I'll get the rest of the cat. And he has a mechanical device and a glass, if you will, that is filled with... Uh, pick whatever you want, cyanide. And he has a mechanical device that will break that cyanide. And he has a dev- also a Geiger counter, a, a detection system that will detect the decay of atoms and radioactivity. And if the, he, the, if the detector detects radioactivity, then it activates the hammer. The hammer breaks the glass and the cyanide escapes and kills the cat. That's his thought experiment in the nineteen thirties so but for a period of time time is very important to this the cat is in what's called quantum superposition <coughs> what I mean by that is uh, uh, it's, it's a, there's two states Now you know how we get back to two trees, two witnesses, two chambers, all of the twos. When you add time in here, the the cat becomes superposed, both dead and alive. Quantum superposition is such that until an observer looks into the box at a period of time, after a period of time, at an instant in time, the the once the observer does that, looks into the box, the cat remains in this two-state condition, alive and dead, simultaneously. But once the observer opens the box, if you will, then the quantum superposition concludes and collapses into one reality or the other. That's Schrödinger's thought experiment, which, as you might remember, we've covered quite significantly, I would hope. So the cat would collapse either into a dead cat or a live cat um, and be out of the two-state condition or the quantum position. And thus the observer, the one who opens the box, the observation of the observer determines determines reality. The observation ends the possibilities or the probabilities of, of the entire condition of the cat. And quantum physics states that particles can exist in superposed states with outcomes related to probabilities. That's one of the fundamentals of quantum physics. But that, that means reality has indeterminacy or uncertainty, Heisenberg's position. It has freedom. It says all of reality has this uncertainty, this freedom, this indeterminacy. And if you wish to call it free will, I think you're correct in doing so. All of creation, then, is in a superposed condition until it is observed. And Schrodinger and Einstein resisted the concept of indeterminacy. Schrodinger actually made this thought experiment as an advocate for Einstein's position of determinacy. They argued that indeterminacy at the particle microscopic level was counterintuitive. At the macroscopic level. In other words, we look around and we do not see indeterminacy. We do not see two positions. We do not see superposition. We see one reality. That's all we see. Well, one reality occurs when what? When it's observed. So what does free will conclude? How does free will conclude? Anyway, Schrodinger and Einstein uh, asked, essentially, when does the quantum system cease to be in superposition? Because they saw it. They saw, I'm sorry, the Bohr's school, the Copenhagen position, was that reality is in a mixture. See how we got here? It's in a mixture of states. And they wanted to know, Einstein and Schrodinger said, when does this mixture, re- mixture resolve into reality? Back to the cat, if you prefer the cat. Does the cat observe itself? Is the cat an observer? So the cat, can it affect its own reality? See, Schrodinger never saw the cat as an observer. Well, I believe that that's an error, don't I? Obviously, I do. Does the cat as an observer determine reality or is another eternal, I'm sorry, another external observer necessary? So can the cat determine reality or does it require an external observer to determine reality? Isn't this fun? As I define fun. Yes? Well, actually there is. I wish, I hope you, I hope it fig- that actually made the, made the uh, video there. Obviously the cat is an observer. Anyone who has experience with cats knows the cat is an observer. Knows the cat has a will and it exercises autonomy, demonstrates its autonomy, its sovereignty, uh, sovereignty continuously. It has a strong will if it's a typical cat. And this is where Schrodinger's thought experiment begins to break. The locomotive comes off the track, so to speak. Have you ever seen the car shop pull a locomotive out of a river and put it back on the tracks? I have. It's amazing what those guys do. How they can get a locomotive out of the Susitna River and pull it back. It's been completely submerged at 2503 and pull it back on. It was knocked off by a slide. Went around the corner at about 45 miles an hour and the slide hit the entire consist of locomotives and threw them all in the river. Carmen got them out of there in less than three or four days and had them back in the shops. They had big old cables. They hook them onto them with incredible cables. And what do you have to worry about? Cable breaks. It's under tremendous tension. They're pulling on it with bulldozers that are rail-equipped. If that cable breaks; it, it it'll cut a building in half. So it's fascinating. What? Why do I throw that in there? Because I'm old now, and I just do stuff like this, just the way it is. Schrodinger's locomotive contest is knocked off the tracks by a slide here. You see, Schrodinger—Schrodinger, Schro, Schrodinger, have to say it right—Schrodinger. He assumed the cat was either dead or alive. Oops, But the external observer is the one who determines that. The external observer who gave the cat the breath of the spirit of life, Genesis 7.22. Because the cat has the breath of the spirit of life. He declared the cat a living soul. He does that in Genesis one twenty-four. He knows the cat is alive. What else does he know about the cat with respect to time? Schrodinger put time in here and said the cat is in a superposed state because of time. The external observer, the 124 Genesis, uh, is not affected by time because he sees the, he observes the cat from a timelessness perspective or frame of reference. He's not affected by time. And you know that because he's the one that conceived time. Schrodinger made the assumption that time has always been. Time has a beginning. The external unseen observer sees the cat as alive. Determines that it is alive. Therefore, it is alive. The unseen observer doesn't open the box because why? Why? He can see in the box. He's omnipresent and he's omniscient. And what he says and what he writes, because he writes, the cat is alive. I know that he writes it because I have found it in the Bible. And he wrote that the cat is alive. The cat is never dead to him. It is always alive. The cat is therefore never in superposition. It's always in one single state, an alive state. Schrodinger didn't know that. He thought he could kill the cat. And that's how we get, that is how uh, we transition now to Revelation 3.5. So let's throw these little pieces into the mix. Aha! Something we're not supposed to do. He who overcomes shall be excuse me, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his names before my Father and before his angels. When will he do that? Ask that, because he's going to do it. He who overcomes, this is Christ speaking, shall be clothed in white garment. I'm, and so anyone who is saved by Christ will be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name. I have written his name and I will not blot it out of the book of life. Revelation thirteen eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So now we weren't learn two things. There's a book of life, the lamb's book of life. People whose names are in it will never be taken out of it, but there are some whose names are not in it. Revelation 17:8. No, that can't be right. No, it is right. How about that? The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Very complicated verse. Revelation tells us that there is a book of life and those that are written in it are alive and those that are not written in it are what? Dead. Now we're back to Schrodinger's cat again, aren't we? But we've made the definitions more correct. I should interject that God has many books, Revelation 20:12. Within the books are every act, every thought, every word of the lost. Everything that the lost has ever done. What do we call the lost now? They're not in the book of life, so therefore they're in the other books. And that's the books of the dead, as Christ defines death. Everything. Those who have rejected the hand of mercy, the hand of salvation that Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of life offers, they're in these other books. Why does the omniscient God, the judge of all things, Christ himself, the ancient of days, have these other books? Where he wrote, writes all of this down. How, how much time does that take? Everything. He's the judge. This is the great white throne. How many are the dead, as he defines dead? He defines dead as not being written in the book. The Lamb's Book of Life book. How many are not written? This is the courtroom of Revelation 20:11 through 15, as I said. That with Jesus God, on the throne, presiding as judge, the Ancient of Days, how many is he judging? And he's opening books to do it. Why? He's omniscient. Does he need to have it all written down in case he forgets? So please, that's not why he writes it down, and that's not why he opens the books. He opens the books in front of who? I told you, his angels and the saved. Why does he have this process? Again, how many? The answer is billions. And I've read estimates exceeding 20 billion because of the antediluvian, that's the pre-flood, post-flood. And then, of course, they have the angels, the angelic beings. And in the lake of fire, where they're going to be imprisoned, is made for Satan and his angels in the beginning. Mankind is added to that, uh, Matthew 25, 41. So this is the judgment of works, the Bible says. In other words, there is no grace here because the grace was refused. There is no mercy, the mercy was refused. This is those who have rejected Christ, even though he's the one that will judge them. He is the creator, he is the life. And you don't have him, so what do you have instead? You have death, as he defines death. You have to define life and death as God does. Very important. So this is the judgment of works. And all works have to be entered into evidence in the courtroom. Everything that anyone has ever done. How long does this trial last? I read one commentator that said five million years. Tried to figure it out. You know, a long trial. He gave everybody an hour, maybe two at the most. That's long, don't you think? Then you're wrong. You're nodding like this, but it's wrong, because here is ta- here is here is the restoration, the eternity. Okay. Here is five million years. You see it? Five million is, if I divide infinity by five million, first, I want you to divide zero by zero when you use your calculator. When you're done with that, I want you to divide infinity by five million. See what it gives you. I think your phones can't handle this, I'm just guessing. But, you know, who knows, maybe phones are getting better. I don't have one. Will I ever have one? Highly unlikely. I just can't see a reason for it yet. Anyway, what's the purpose of the books? Obviously, the books demonstrate omniscience. They are not omniscient. Whoever wrote the book had to be omniscient to write it. Now we're back to blood and breath, aren't we? One is the symbol, the other is the uh, the uh, real event, if you will. So the books demonstrate to the angels and the saved and the unsaved that the judge is omniscient. He not only has the books, he can read the books. And he knows where everything is in the books. He already knows he's omniscient. Duh. Duh. So, obviously, the books are for the demons and the, and the lost of the dead mankind, as he defines dead. Animals also know that Jesus Christ is omniscient God. They receive no judgment. That's why the cat is alive. you follow? Even if the cat were not a thought experiment and it was real, it is alive. Schrodinger thought that the cat could die. It can't die, as Christ defines uh, death. It's always alive, as he defines life. That's Ecclesiastes 3. It's always usually misspoken when it's taught. as the opposite of that. But see me later if you think Ecclesiastes 3 says something other than what I just said it says. So, the saved, the alive are written into the Lamb's book of life and he will not blot out the names from the book of life. He won't blot it out. What doctrine is that? It's the doctrine of eternal security. It's plain as it can be. However, there will be many who write and scream at me. But it can't be more obvious. He will not blot out the names from the book of life. Can you blot your own name? Can you go get an eraser and run up there to the book of life and erase his handwriting? You cannot. If you could, then how many would be saved? You would have God having a system of salvation by which everybody had an eraser and erased themselves because we're all stupid. And he is not evil. Please don't call him evil by saying that you can erase your name out of the, his book of life. Therefore, rejoice, Luke 10, 20, because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice. Your, the names are written and cannot be blotted out by you. If you, you could blot them out, who else could do it? No one can do it because they're not blottable. New word, theological term. Blottation. Blottification. Blotified. Those who are remembered by Christ will never be forgotten. He is the rememberer of the saved. He, he is remembering is salvation. Luke 23:42 through 43. If you think he will forget you, then you are calling him what? Not omniscient. And He has the books. Schrodinger inadvertently lurched into the theological realm. He didn't know it with this conceptualized experiment of life and death. This is Genesis 2-3. He didn't recognize that when he did it. He thought he was arguing indeterminacy. But indeterminacy is Genesis 2 and 3. So obviously he's right here. Is there free will or not? I got in a discussion with Catherine just a little earlier before the lecture. Uh, before I wrote the lecture in the front row during the music, because I always write this during the music. And we talked about, does God's omniscience destroy free will? Well, if you say that God's omniscience makes free will impossible, then does his omniscience make his own free will impossible? There's your next question. Does he have free will? Or does his omniscience preclude his own free will? He seems to think we have free will because he designed Genesis as if we have free will. He put in two trees. He has accountability. All of that implies that he believes he has free will and that we have free will. Therefore, his omniscience does not affect his free will. Therefore, his free will or our free will can somehow uh, coexist with his omniscience. That would be logical to some. It's not logical to everybody. Schrodinger failed to properly define life and death. That's a common error of the physicalists, especially the physicalists of the biological sciences. And they consistently define life as a physical process. The physicalist is, uh, is subordinate. I'm sorry. The physical is subordinate to the breath of life, so you can't look at life as being purely physical because it has the blood is subordinated to the breath. Does that make sense? How I put that back together? I hope. In other words, the biology. You can't get a degree in biology in this country anymore, and and expose that you believe in creation. If you do that, they will immediately not give you a degree. You will be excommunicated from whatever college. That offers a biological science degree. So everybody has to lie to these people. And continue lying. They deserve it. They see death as a physical process. Physical only. They do not see that it is subordinated to the breath of life. The breath of life cannot be destroyed. Body can be destroyed. That's not real death. That's fake death. Does that make sense? Real death is when your book is not or your your name is not written in the book of the Lamb's book of life. So the biological sciences only describe physical death. That's where they break apart. And they consistently do it and Schrodinger was a uh, was a physics physicalist, not a biological physical physicalist. I could barely talk today. So we can we can forgive Schrodinger. Anyway, imagine for a moment the angels who are witnessing something. They're back, we're back in Genesis now. Two humans are made by God. The breath of life is given to them. And they are in a life state. And they're in a garden. An enclosure, if you will. I'll make an enclosure. Here we go. I'll get rid of my cat. And I will put two humans... And I'll dry them traditionally. And I'll put them in an enclosure. So far, it looks kind of the same, huh? And I'll put some poison in the enclosure. Okay? And I'll have angels observing. And they'll be playing banjos. They're all up here, you can't see them. They're the unseen. Sinodrome. So I have two humans who are in a life state, in a garden, enclosure, with two trees, one of which is poison. Here's Schrodinger. He never knew it. Observers are now observing. Adam, Eve, and who else? Satan. In an enclosure, because it's completely enclosed. And it has poison in it and it has Satan in it. And Satan's intention is to do what? Is to break the glass, isn't it? The symbolic glass and release the poison and kill the woman and the man. And get them out of a life state. Can he get them out of a life state? He thinks they're cats. He may not think they're cats. He's very smart. But he thinks that they think they're cats. He thinks that they think that they're biological physicalists. Or he can convince them of that. But he could not deceive the man. The man never believed that he was a physicalist. Satan cannot kill either Adam or Eve, Matthew 10, 28. Thank you, I see it. The soul consciousness cannot be killed by Satan or anyone for that matter. And Schrodinger's poison could not kill the soul of the cat, the consciousness of the cat. Your consciousness, your soul, cannot be killed by a physical process, which is death. And notice, just for fun, that Schrodinger positioned himself into the satanic role. He's the one that made it possible to break the glass and release the poison. That's the satanic position, breaking the glass and making the poison, presenting the poison. Jesus Christ, the judge of all things, the Lamb of God, who opens the book of life and the other books, he alone Uh, can imprison the souls of men and angels into the place of destruction. He opens the box, if you will, and he observes who's alive and who's dead by how he defines life and death. That's when he does it. He opens the book, and if you're in the book, you're always alive. If you're not in the book, you're dead. And that's bad news. However, you are part of that process. You make a decision. Some say no. Some say there is no free will. That's exactly, you are now Einstein, theologically. You say nothing is indeterminable. All things are predetermined. Omniscience destroys will. That's your position. I think that the weight of scripture opposes you. I'm not arguing for unlimited free will. I understand gravitational phenomena. Let me show you. I am going to defeat with my will gravitational phenomena. Oops. So I do not have unlimited free will. I have limited free will. Let me say this. Adam and Eve were in physical life but chose physical death. This is how God defines death um, sometimes. We are in physical death. We reach for the hand of Christ that holds eternal life. Adam and Eve did that as well. So they were in a life state. They chose a physical death state. But then they chose an eternal life state. We are in a physical death state. We choose an eternal life state from the hand that offers it. Now we're going to go into a tangent. i conclude with a tangent. Someone on the Internet will laugh who has any mathematical background. I have been slowly presenting the case that the human heart, is a symbol of something in the Bible. It's a symbol of a truth of the Bible. The central question would follow. If the heart is a simple symbol, a hidden, concealed, designed device... That relates to something of great significance, what might be that great significance? What's the aim of this symbol? What's it trying to present to us? To phrase it in another way, the one that designed the body of man says that man is in the image of God, is an image of God. So how much of an image of God are we? The one that designed us says that we are images of him. Now, is that metaphorically? Is that representatively? Is that physically? Or is it all three? The heart and the brain—how many are there? Use your phones for math. There are two. Of the, there's, there's a heart in the brain. Add them together. We get two. Two incredibly mysterious chemical-electrical structures placed in the body that communicate without ceasing with each other. They're joined together, unbelievably joined. The heart has an intrinsic system. The brain has an intrinsic system. And yet they are intrinsic joined. It's amazing. And the one who did this created the body from dust. Dust breathed into the body. The consciousness, the mind. He made these two devices for lack of a better term. I don't know what else to call them but devices. I don't like calling them organs. Everybody will think it's a piano. And he did it to not just interact between themselves, but to also include the consciousness, the mind. So I have the heart, the brain, and the mind. What's he trying to tell us? Let's throw some things at the most holy race board here and see if something of the some things kind of flows out of it. I'm trying to call this the story of the heart. The heart tells a story, a theological story. First, the heart is a double pump, so there's two pumps. And by sheer chance and coincidence, just by just blind squirrel finding nut theory, the two pumps prevent the mixing, I said this earlier, they prevent The mixing of the oxygenated blood from the deoxygenated blood. The heart has four valves. And the four valves prevent, starting to get the the theme, the four valves prevent the backflow of blood. If the oxygenated blood were to mix with the deoxygenated blood, what would happen? Let me help you. Physical death. If the blood was not forced by compression into a singular path and held there, locked in place by the valves, what would happen? Let me help you. Physical death. The heart has two nodes. And I'm drawn here and I'll redraw them in a minute. It has two nodes. Why does it have four valves and two nodes? What is the story of this device? What is God trying to... And it's been hidden inside the breastbone. People have dissected it and pulled the heart out for centuries. But we haven't had any idea what's going on until quite recently. They never even found the nodes for centuries. The heart has two nodes. What do the two nodes do? Take a guess. It's on the board. It prevents the simultaneous contraction of all four... Chambers, if you wish to think of it that way. If the atrial chambers and the ventricle chambers were to contract simultaneously, what do you think would happen? Death, physical death. I hope you notice the trend. I hope your your conclusion is, is, wow, this evolutionary process is amazing. How can it be? Over billions and billions of years, obviously, the heart is the result of an, a design. The mathematics are ridiculous. Evolution is destroyed by this one. I could pick anything. I could pick the brain. I could pick the stomach. Evolution is an absurdity. And they know it. The mammalian heart alone destroys evolutionary atheism. There is no other kind as an aside but atheistic evolution. You may think you have a theological atheist I'm sorry, a theological evolutionary position that you don't. You have an atheistic one. Because there is no consciousness that can evolve. But I digress, sorta. Using my extraordinary artistic skills, S K I L Z, I'm going to try to draw the electrical system here really fast because I'm going to have a node the sinonatrial node and I'm going to have the atrioventricular node and they are incredible and they they work together and they come out of this with the bachmann bundle okay now I know this is not going to mean very much today but out of the a- a- atrial ventricular node comes the bundle of Hiss, and I won't necessarily have time to label it and then it bifurcates into two. I want you to look at it. I'm drawing a heart. This will overlay on top of this. I've done this in dotted lines already, so you can see I'm not doing a great job, but it'll still be worth a lot of money. Anyway, this bifurcates into uh, a system like this that's contained in the septum here. I have transeptal punctures in my heart right now that are trying to heal, not going so well. Okay. This is the electrical circuit, is what what I'm drawing for you. Now I'm going to give you the posterior, the left posterior bundle. And then this is the Perkinsy fibers. Okay, now it's not the scale, and I didn't do a great job. Actually, I did amazing. This fits right here. See that? Okay, the, the Bachman bundle is a little bit out of proportion, and so is everything else. But I want you to recognize where that fits as best I can. It's beautiful, I know. They're both beautiful. The electrical circuit, this is just the electrical circuit. That's all I have drawn. first thing you do when you're an electrician is you find the power supply. I know where the power supply is. The first time I ever looked at this diagram, when I saw it, I said, Okay, those obviously, that's the power supply right there. Because you know how you draw AC current? it's a power supply, you draw it like that. If I'm going to draw a battery, I'm going to draw it like that. That's AC. That's an AC generator and a battery. The electrical circuit is the contractile force of the heart. What do I mean by that? This is what makes the heart contract. Meaning its function is to cause the atrials to contract on time. Because the atrials have to contract on time, and the ventricles have to contract on time. Contract. Contract. So both of these, the atrials and the ventricles, there's a timing element here. And the timing is critical. If the heart does not have perfect timing, what happens? Physical death. And perhaps you're finally getting the point. Brady, Brady had a great thing today. I'm supposed to say, finally a point, And all of you are supposed to say, yay a point. So we need to practice that sometime before we're on TV. That would be hilarious. We do it every time. Not today. I kind of spoiled it. I should have done it individually and we should have sprung it on the entire internet. The internet right now is screaming, yay a point. See, so they got ahead of us. Now we have to compete with them. The sinoatrial node is the generator. This one right here. This is the SA node. This is the AV node. Okay, that is the generator, the first generator. Obviously, how many generators do I have? Oh, it's the rice. Okay, it's not my heart monitor. Okay, that's that's the best news ever, right there. Okay, good. The sinoatrial node is the is the first generator. It's producing electrical signals, and it's therefore the first clock, if you wish to think of it that way. And again, it's, it produces electricity, and it begins the cardiac cycle, and this is called the story of the cardiac cycle, how this thing is, what it's doing, the process that it has. How does it do what it's doing? So how does the uh, thinoatrial node become electrified? It's electrical. Is there any other electrical nodes in the body? You might want to look that up. If they are in the body, where do you think they are? Are they in the foot? How much cardiac, how much myocardia do I have? But this one in this particular place, this sinoatrial node, highly specialized, is neurological tissue. It, that neurological tissue is combined with a muscularity and it contracts, they believe, it generates a nerve impulse or electricity that then travel through all of this circuitry. It goes this way to the to the left atrium. It goes down here to the ventricle, left ventricle and right ventricle. It goes, this is the posterior left, so those are behind the heart. This is the anterior portion right here, posterior behind it. I showed all of it at the same time because I'm able as an artist to draw three-dimensional figures. Don't try that. It takes a lot of time. Great skill. My question is, how did the sinoatrial node and the atrial ventricular node achieve this automaticity, this spontaneousness, where they are able to generate electricity on their own without any outside influence? Now, I know parasympathetic and sympathetic. We'll get to that next week. You on the Internet that are yelling, yay, a point, wait before you attack again. How did the circuitry locate itself in the exact positioning? Because if it wasn't in this exact positioning surrounding the ventricles, if it wasn't going over to the atrial, if it didn't have a posterior uh, aspect to it, if it didn't go from node to node, this, this right here is called the bundle of Hiss. Okay. This is Purkinje fibers, Bachman fibers. I should write Bun Hiss. How did it get in this exact configuration? How did the circuitry locate itself into the exact positioning in order to prevent simultaneous contraction? Because if it's not in this position, we have simultaneous contraction. And if we have simultaneous contraction, what do we have? We have death. Physical death. Is it intelligent agency or stupid luck? You decide. Again, Mm As much as I can present what's going on, there's a why to this, a greater meaning to this. There's a biblical connectivity. The one who wrote the living word created the heart. And I want to know why. I think that's critical. I'll explain that in a minute. The electrical order, as you can see, is the SA node to the AV node. From the AV node to the bundle of Hiss. From the bundle of Hiss to the right-left bundles. The posterior and the the anterior bundles. The Purkinje fibers. That's the electrical order. And the electrical travel, the current flow, guess what? You can't see it. I could stop here. I got 20 more pages. I'm kidding. You can't see the electrical travel. You can't see the circuit. You can't measure it. It's not measurable. It's not perceivable. It's invisible. And EKG, and how many times have I studied EKGs, do you think? How many irregularities, how many arrhythmias have I memorized? What do you think? EKG cannot reveal the current flow. It can only... Reveal the contractual results, the responses. Notice the current flow reaches the apex of the heart. This is called the apex. It comes down here. Why do you suppose it comes down there? Because idiot electricians would just just hit here and here. They wouldn't go down there. Why waste the wire? Somebody decided it had to go to the apex. The current flow reaches the apex, the point of the heart, and then it spreads up the walls of the ventricles from the bottom up. That causes contraction from the bottom up in the ventricles. Upward contraction. Ask why. Always ask why. Why carries intelligence. Do you understand that? Evolution never has why. Only intelligence has why. Why implies intelligence. It demands intelligence. There's a why to this system. Because if I'm at the bottom, then I have contraction from the bottom to the top. Notice where the valves are. These valves close. And this actually is a free-flowing system. The the pulmonary vein blood is coming from the, uh, the lungs. The oxygenated blood actually can go right through that valve. And half of the ventricle, or I'm sorry, half of the atrial is released before it contracts. It contracts halfway through that and expels the rest of the blood out of the atrial. That's really smart. Because now it's down into the ventricle, and it expands the ventricle, and the pressure alone closes that valve. That's really smart. And then the ventricle fires, because it can't have simultaneous firing, the, and it fires from the bottom up. And guess what that does? That pushes those valves open in the aorta, and in the pulmonary branch, or the pulmonary bundle, or trunk, that's what it's called. Sorry, don't sue me yet. There's a guy suing me. Where is he from, Ireland? Daggett is his name. I've got to worry about him. If the contraction was top-down, what would happen? Death. But the contraction is bottom-up in the ventricles. And what do we get? Life. Physical life. We always had life. If you're saved, and then the Lamb's books arrive. Finally, for today. Finally, yay. Yay. Why are there two nodes? Why not one node do all of that? Electricians say nodes are expensive. Let's not put another another node in there. We can cut the costs. One less node, more money for me. I don't care if it doesn't work. I can fix it. I'll get paid for that. Why are there two nodes? Because the atrial ventricular node delays. That's really important. Delays. You see, there's a timing. This is a clock. The story of the heart includes a timing mechanism. The AV node delays the sinoatrial nodes because it wants to make sure that the ventricle has time to fill up with blood and then it wants to contract from the bottom up. Atrial node delays the signal from the sinoatrial node allowing the blood from the atrials to fully evacuate before the ventricles contract. How does the AV node know how to do this? Well, it's neurological. It has nervous capability, neurons. Here's the most fascinating thing to me as an electrician. The bundle of Hiss is insulated. But the Purkinje, Purkinje fibers are not insulated. I want to know why as an electrician. Why did I wrap those in tape, but I didn't wrap the bottom ones in tape? Why is that? Can you figure that out? Make sure that nothing comes out of the bundle of hiss and gets into the structure around it as the electrical signal travels through it. But down here where the ventricles are, there's an infusion. There's connectivity. So this is insulated from connectivity. This is not insulated so that the ventricles get a full blast of electrical contractile information. That's really smart. Because an electrician worked for the Alaska Railroad would say, I'm not going to insulate that. It probably won't ever short out and everything will be fine. Save money. More for my pension. See, there's why. Is that the emergency room? No, good. I have to be... You notice I'm a little jumpy. <laughs> if you find the why, who have you found? The why. When you figure out why, 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 that gets you to intelligence. You have found God. You have found intelligence. There is no why in stupid luck of evolution. There's just stupid luck. This has intelligence. And that's only the beginning. I've hardly even got close. This is called the story of the cardiac cycle, the story of the heart, where it fits in Scripture. You can find it in Scripture. You can find all of this there. So start thinking about it.